Section 3 of Ben the Luggage Boy, or Among the Wars, by Horatio Alger, Jr. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tori Falder. Chapter 5. A Beer Garden in the Bowery. Ben sat down again in his old seat and occupied himself once more in looking about him. After a while, he became sleepy. Besides having taken a considerable walk, he had not slept much the night before. As no one occupied the bench but himself, he thought he might as well make himself comfortable. Accordingly, he laid his bundle crosswise at one end and laid back, using it for a pillow. The visor of his cap he brought down over his eyes so as to shield them from the afternoon sun. The seat was hard, to be sure, but his recumbent position rested him. He did not mean to go to sleep, but gradually the sounds around him became an indistinct hum, even the noise and bustle of busy Broadway but a few feet distant failed to ward off sleep, and in a short time he was sleeping soundly. Of course, he could not sleep in so public a place without attracting attention. Two ragged boys espied him and held a low conference together. "'What's he got in that bundle, Jim, do you think?' asked one. "'We'd better look and see.' They went up to the bench and touched him, to make sure that he was fast asleep. The touch did not rouse him to consciousness." "'Just lift up his head, Mike, and I'll take the bundle,' said the larger of the two boys. This was done. "'Now, let him down softly.' So the bundle was removed, and poor Ben, wandering somewhere in the land of dreams, was none the wiser. His head, deprived of its former support, now rested on the hard bench. It was not so comfortable, but he was too tired to wake, so he slept on. Meanwhile, Jim and Mike opened the bundle. "'It's a couple of shirts,' said Jim. "'Is that all?' asked Mike, disappointed." Well, that's better than nothing. Give me one of them. It's just about your size. Tain't big enough for me. Then give me the two of them. What'll you give? I ain't got no stamps. I'll pay you a quarter when I get it. That don't go down, said Jim, whose confidence in his confederate's honesty was not very great. Considering the transaction in which they were now engaged, it is not surprising that there should have been a mutual distrust. Being unable to make any bargain, Jim decided to take his share of the booty round to a second-hand clothes dealer in the Chatham Street. Here, after considerable higgling, he succeeded in selling the shirt for 16 cents, which was less than his companion had offered. However, it was cashed down, and so it was immediately available, an important consideration in the present state of Jim's finances. A bird in the hand, as he considered, was worth two in the bush. Jim immediately purchased a cigar with a portion of his dishonest gains, and, procuring a light, walked about in a state of high enjoyment, puffing away as coolly as a man of twice his years. Meanwhile, Ben continued to sleep, happily unconscious of the loss of his entire personal possessions. In his dreams, he was at home once more, playing with his school companions. Let him sleep. He will waken soon enough to the hard realities of a street life voluntarily undertaken it is true but none the less likely to bear heavily upon him he slept a long time when he awoke it was six o'clock he sat upon his seat and rubbed his eyes in momentary bewilderment in his dreams he had been back again to his native village and he could not at once recall his change of circumstances but it all came back to him soon enough he realized with a slight pain that he had a home no longer that he was a penniless vagrant for whom the hospitality of the streets alone was open. He did wish that he could sit down at the plentiful home table and eat the well-cooked supper which was always provided. That is, if he could blot out one remembrance, when he thought of the unjust punishment that had driven him forth, his pride rose and his determination became as stubborn as ever. I do not defend Ben in this. He was clearly wrong. 
The best of parents may be unintentionally unjust at times, and this is far from affording an adequate excuse for a boy to leave home. But Ben had a great deal of pride, and I am only telling you how he felt. Our young adventurer did not at first realize the loss which he had sustained. It was at least five minutes before he thought of his bundle at all. At length, chancing to look at the seat beside him, he missed it. Where can it be, I wonder, he thought, perplexed. He looked under the bench, thinking that perhaps it had rolled off, but it need not be said that it was not to be seen. Ben was rather disturbed. It was all he had brought from home and constituted his entire earthly possessions. It must have rolled off and been picked up by somebody, he thought, but the explanation was not calculated to bring any satisfaction. I did not think I should fall asleep. It occurred to him that some of the boys nearby might have seen it. So he went up to a group of bootblacks nearby, one of whom was Jim, who had actually been concerned in the robbery. The other boys knew nothing of the affair. I say, boys, said Ben, have you seen anything of my bundle? What bundle, Johnny? said Jim, who was now smoking his second cigar. I had a small bundle tied up in a newspaper, said Ben. I put it under my head and then fell asleep. Now I can't find it. Do you think we stole it? said Jim defiantly. Of course I don't, said Ben, but I thought it might have slipped out and you might have seen somebody pick it up. Haven't seen it, Johnny, said one of the other boys. Most likely it stole. Do you think so? asked Ben anxiously. In course, you might expect it would be. I didn't mean to go to sleep. What was there in it? There was two shirts. You've got a shirt on, ain't you? Yes, said Ben. That's all right, then. What does a feller want of a thousand shirts? There's some difference between two shirts and a thousand, said Ben. What's the odds? I haven't got but one shirt. That's all I want. When it is wore out, I'll buy a new one. What do you do when it gets dirty? asked Ben in some curiosity. Oh, I wash it once in two or three weeks, was the reply. This was not exactly in accordance with Ben's idea of neatness, but he saw that no satisfaction was likely to be obtained in this quarter, so he walked away rather depressed. It certainly hadn't been a lucky day. This first day in the city, he had been rejected in half a dozen stores in his applications for employment, had spent nearly all his money, and been robbed of all his clothing except what he wore. Again, Ben began to feel an appetite. He had eaten his dinner late, but it had consisted of a plate of meat only. His funds being now reduced to two cents, he was obliged to content himself with an apple, which did something towards appeasing his appetite. Next, Ben began to consider anxiously how he was to pass the night. Having no money to spend for lodging, there seemed nothing to do but sleep out of doors. It was warm weather and plenty of street boys did it, but to Ben it would be a new experience, and he regarded it with some dread. He wished he could meet with Jerry Collins, his acquaintance of the morning. From him, he might obtain some information that would be of service in his present strait. Three or four hours must elapse before it would be time to go to bed. Ben hardly knew how or where to pass them. He had become tired of the park. Besides, he had got over a part of his fatigue and felt able to walk about and explore the city. He turned at a venture up Chatham Street and was soon interested in the sights of this peculiar thoroughfare. The shops opened to the street, with half their stock and trade exposed on the sidewalk, the importunities of the traders, and the appearance of the people whom he met. It seemed very likely and picturesque to Ben, and drew away his attention from his own awkward position. He was asked to buy by some of the traders, being promised wonderful bargains, but his penniless condition put him out of the reach of temptation. So he wandered on until he came to the Bowery, a broad avenue wider than Broadway, and lined by shops of a great variety but of a grade inferior to those of its more aristocratic neighbor. 
Here also, the goods are liberally displayed on the sidewalk and are generally labeled with low prices, which tempts many purchasers. The purchaser, however, must look carefully to the quality of the goods which he buys, or he will in many cases find the low price merely a snare and a delusion, and regret that he had not paid more liberally and bought a better article. Later in the evening, on his return walk, Ben came to an establishment brilliant with light, from which proceeded strains of music. Looking in, he saw that it was filled with small tables, around which were seated men, women, and children. They had glasses before them from which they drank. This was a lager beer hall or garden, an institution transplanted from Germany, and chiefly patronized by those of German birth or extraction. It seemed bright and cheerful, and our young adventurer thought it would be pleasant to go in and spend an hour or two listening to the music, but he was prevented by the consciousness that he had no money to spend and might be considered an intruder. While he was looking in wistfully, he was struck on the back and turning, saw to his surprise the face of his only acquaintance in New York, Jerry Collins, the bootblack. I am glad to see you, he said, eagerly offering his hand without considering that Jerry's hand, unwashed during the day, was stained with blacking. He felt so glad to meet an acquaintance, however, that he would not have minded this, even if it had occurred to him. The same to you, said Jerry. Are you going in? I haven't got any money, said Ben, a little ashamed of the confession. Well, I have, and that'll do just as well. He took Ben by the arm, and they passed through a vestibule, and entered the main apartment, which was of large size. On one side, about halfway down, was a large instrument, some like an organ, from which the music proceeded. The tables were very well filled, Germans largely predominating among the guests. Sit down here, said Jerry. They took seats at one of the tables. Opposite was a stout German and his wife, the latter holding a baby. Both had glasses of lager before them, and the baby was also offered a share by its mother, but from the contortions of its face did not appear to relish it. Zwei glass lager, said Jerry to a passing attendant. Can you speak German? asked Ben, surprised. Yaw, said Jerry. My father was an Irishman, and my mother was a Dutchman. Jerry's German, however, seemed to be limited, and he made no further attempts to converse in that language. The glasses were brought. Jerry drank his down at a drop, but Ben, who had never before tasted lager, could not at once become reconciled to its bitter taste. Don't you like it? asked Jerry. Not very much, said Ben. Then I'll finish it for you, and he suited the action to the word. Besides the lager, a few plain cakes were sold, but nothing more substantial. Evidently, the beer was the great attraction. Ben could not help observing, with some surprise, that though everybody was drinking, there was not the slightest disturbance or want of decorum or drunkenness. The music, which was furnished at intervals, was of very good quality and was listened to with attention. I was going to Tony Pastor's tonight, said Jerry, if I hadn't met you. What sort of a place is that? asked Ben. Oh, it's a bully place. Lots of fun. You must go there sometime. I think I will, answered Ben, mentally adding, if I ever have money enough. Here the music struck up and they stopped to listen to it. When this was over, Jerry proposed to go out. Ben would have been willing to stay longer, but he saw that his companion did not care so much for the music as himself, and he did not wish to lose sight of him. To be alone in a great city, particularly under Ben's circumstances, is not very pleasant, and our young adventurer determined to stick to his new acquaintance, who, though rough in his manners, had yet seemed inclined to be friendly, and Ben felt sadly in need of a friend. Chapter 6. The Burning Bales where are you going to sleep tonight? asked Ben, introducing a subject which had given him some anxiety. I don't know, said Jerry carelessly. I'll find a place somewhere. I'll go with you if you'll let me, said Ben. In course I will. 
I haven't got any money. What's the odds? They don't charge nothing at the hotel where I stop. What time do you go to bed? Most any time. Do you feel sleepy? Rather, I didn't sleep much last night. Well, we'll go and find a place now. How'd you like sleeping on cotton bales? I think that would be comfortable. There's a pile of bales down on the pier where the New Orleans steamers come in. Maybe we could get a chance there. All right, where is it? Pier 8, North River. It'll take us 20 minutes or maybe half an hour to go there. Let us go, said Ben. He felt relieved at the idea of so comfortable a bed as a cotton bale and was anxious to get stowed away for the night. The two boys struck across to Broadway and followed that street down past Trinity Church, turning down the first street beyond. Rector Street, notwithstanding its clerical name, is far from an attractive street. Just in the rear of the great church and extending down to the wharves is a collection of miserable dwellings occupied by tenants upon whom the near presence of the sanctuary appears to produce little impression of a salutary character. Ben looked about him in ill-concealed disgust. He neither fancied the neighborhood nor the people whom he met. But the island is very narrow just here, and he had not far to walk to West Street, which runs along the edge of Manhattan Island and is lined with wharves. Jerry, of course, did not mind the surroundings. He was too well used to them to care. They brought out opposite the pier. There it is, said Jerry. Ben saw a pile of cotton bales heaped up on the wharf in front. Just behind them was a gate and over it the sign of the New Orleans Company. I should think somebody would steal the bales, said Ben. Are they left out here all night? There's a watchman around here somewhere, said Jerry. He stays here all night to guard the bales. Will he let us sleep here? I don't know, said Jerry. We'll creep in when he isn't looking. The watchman was sitting down, leaning his back against one of the bales. A short pipe was in his mouth, and he seemed to be enjoying his smoke. This was contrary to orders, for the cotton being combustible might easily catch fire. But this man, supposing that he would not be detected, indulged himself in the forbidden luxury. Now creep along softly, said Jerry. The latter, being barefooted, had an advantage over Ben, but our young adventurer crept after him as softly as he could. Jerry found a bale screened from observation by the higher piles on each side, where he thought they could sleep unobserved. Following his lead, Ben stretched himself out upon it. The watchman was too busily occupied with his pipe to detect any noise. Ain't it comfortable, whispered Jerry. Yes, said Ben, in the same low tone. I wouldn't ask for nothing better, said Jerry. Ben was not so sure about that, but then he had not slept out hundreds of nights like Jerry in old wagons or on doorsteps or wherever else he could so he had a different standard of comparison. He could not immediately go to sleep. He was tired, it was true, but his mind was busy. It was only twelve hours since he had landed in the city, but it had been an eventful twelve hours. He understood his position a little better now, and how much he had undertaken in boldly leaving home at ten years of age and taking upon himself the task of earning his living. If he had known what was before him, would he have left home at all? Ben was not sure about this. He did own to himself, however, that he was disappointed. The city had not proved the paradise he had expected. Instead of finding shopkeepers eager to secure his services, he had found himself uniformly rejected. He began to suspect that it was rather early to begin the world at ten years of age. Then again, though he was angry with his father, he had no cause of complaint against his mother. She had been uniformly kind and gentle, and he found it hard to keep back the tears when he thought how she would be distressed at his running away. He had not thought of that in the heat of his first anger, but he thought of it now. How would she feel if she knew where he was at this moment, resting on a cotton bale on a city wharf, penniless and without a friend in the great city, except the ragged boy who was already asleep at his side?
She would feel badly. Ben knew that, and he half regretted having been so precipitate in his action. He could remedy it all and relieve his mother's heart by going back, but here Ben's pride came in. To go back would be to acknowledge himself wrong. It would be a virtual confession of failure, and moreover, knowing his father's sternness, he knew that he would be severely punished. Unfortunately for Ben, his father had a stern, unforgiving disposition that never made allowances for the impulses of boyhood. He had never condescended to study his own son, and the method of training he had adopted with him was in some respects very pernicious. His system hardened instead of softening and prejudiced Ben against what was right, maddening him with a sense of injustice and so preventing his being influenced towards good. Of course, all this did not justify Ben in running away from home. The thought of his mother ought to have been sufficient to have kept him from any such step. But it was necessary to be stated in order that my readers might better understand what sort of a boy Ben was. So, in spite of his half-relenting, Ben determined that he would not go home at all events. Whatever hardships lay before him in the new life which he had adopted, he resolved to stand them as well as he could. Indeed, however much he might desire to retrace his steps, he had no money to carry him back, nor could he obtain any unless he should write home for it, and this again would be humiliating. Ben's last thought then, as he sank to sleep, was that he would stick to New York and get his living somehow, even if he had to black boots for a living. At the end of an hour, both boys were fast asleep. The watchman, after smoking his pipe, got up and paced up and down the wharf drowsily. He did not happen to observe the young sleepers. If he had done so, he would undoubtedly have shaken them roughly and ordered them off. It was rather fortunate that neither Ben nor his companion were in the habit of snoring, as this would have at once betrayed their presence, even to the negligent watchman. After a while, the watchman bethought himself again of his pipe, and filling the bowl with tobacco, lighted it. Then, with the most culpable carelessness, he half reclined on one of the bales and took comfort. Not having prepared himself for the vigils of the night by repose during the day, he began to feel uncommonly drowsy. The whiffs came less and less frequently, until at last the pipe fell from his lips and he fell back fast asleep. The burning contents of the pipe fell on the bale, and gradually worked their way down into the interior. Here the mischief soon spread. What followed may easily be imagined. Ben was aroused from his sleep by a confused outcry. He rubbed his eyes to see what was the matter. There was something stifling and suffocating in the atmosphere, which caused him to choke as he breathed. As he became more awake, he realized that the cotton bales, among which he had taken refuge, were on fire. He became alarmed and shook Jerry energetically. "'What's up?' said Jerry drowsily. "'I ain't done nothing. You can't take me up.' "'Jerry, wake up! The bales are on fire!' said Ben. "'I thought twas a cop,' said Jerry, rousing and at a glance understanding the position of affairs. "'Let's get out of this!' "'That was not quite so easy.' There was fire on all sides, and they must rush through it at some risk. However, it was every moment getting worse, and there was no chance for delay. Follow me, said Jerry, and he dashed through, closely pursued by Ben. By this time, quite a crowd of men and boys had gathered around the burning bales. When the two boys rushed out, there was a general exclamation of surprise. Then one burly man caught Jerry by the arm and said, Here's the young villain that set the bales on fire. Let me alone, will you, said Jerry. Your grandmother set it on fire more likely. No sooner was Jerry seized than another man caught hold of Ben and forcibly detained him. I've got the other, he said. Now, you young rascal, tell me how you did it, said the first. Was you smoking? 
No, I wasn't, said Jerry shortly. I was sleeping along of this other boy. What made you come here to sleep? Because we hadn't no other bed. Are you sure you wasn't smoking? Look here, said Jerry contemptuously. You must think I'm a fool to go and set my own bed on fire. That's true, said a bystander. It wouldn't be very likely. Who did it then? asked the stout man suspiciously. It's the watchman. I seed him smoking when I turned in. Where is he now? Search was made for the watchman, but he had disappeared. Awaking to a consciousness of what mischief he had caused through his carelessness, he had slipped away in the confusion and was not likely to return. The boy tells the truth, said one of the crowd. I saw the watchman smoking myself. No doubt the fire caught from his pipe. The boys are innocent. Better let them go. The two custodians of Jerry and Ben released their hold, and they gladly availed themselves of the opportunity to remove themselves to a safer distance from their late bedchamber. Two fire engines came thundering up, and streams of water were directed effectively at the burning bales. The flames were extinguished, but not till considerable damage had been done. As the two boys watched the contest between the flames and the engines, from a safe distance, they heard the sonorous clang of the bell in the church tower ringing out twelve o'clock. End of section three. Recording by Tori Falder.